Macworld Podcast number 355 for May 15th, 2013, brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it easy to create your own website. Welcome to another Macworld Podcast. I'm Chris Breen. This week, we offer you a doubleheader. One where we start with Macworld's Jackie Dove speaking with Adobe's Senior Marketing Director, Scott Morris, about the company's recent announcement that the company was ending perpetual licenses for upcoming versions of applications that are part of the company's creative suite. I then talk with Jeff Carlson about four beefs he has with iPhoto and where iPhoto might be going in the future. Take it away, Jackie. Thanks, Chris. I'm Jackie Dove, Macworld Senior Editor. And last week, the big news coming out of Adobe Max, the company's creative conference, was that it plans to eliminate all perpetual licenses for its line of professional creative software as of now and replace it with a service model called Creative Cloud. That means Photoshop, Illustrator, Premiere Pro, and the whole line of familiar tools that people use for art and design projects. Now just a year old, Creative Cloud includes all of the software in the Creative Suite, as well as all other services such as online storage, collaboration, online-only software, fonts, exhibition space, training, and more. This move swept through the community and provoked the expected firestorm of controversy. And today we have Scott Morris, Adobe's Senior Marketing Director, to explain more about the new Creative Cloud world and address some of the attendant questions. Scott, welcome to the program. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Jackie. So I guess we should just begin with the general points and just lay out Adobe's perspective on the new Creative Cloud policies and what you hope to accomplish with them. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, so as you pointed out, uh, we did release, uh, it, along with our uh, many announcements last week, uh, we announced that we have brand new versions of these desktop apps uh, that are coming soon. They're going to be shipping next month uh, that will be available exclusively through Creative Cloud. Uh, so lots and lots of innovation in the new desktop tools themselves. There are a couple hundred new features. Uh, there are 15 completely upgraded apps, uh, and they have been rebranded um, to be called Creative Cloud Apps, CC Apps, um, not only because they're only available through a Creative Cloud membership, but also to really uh, signal the deep integration between creative online services and the desktop tools themselves. And I think that's one of the big things that was different about our announcement last week is it wasn't just about new features in the creative tools, which is something Adobe's been doing for years with the desktop tools themselves, but a whole line of new online services tied through the cloud uh, that enable all sorts of new workflows for customers. And and can you go through some of those online services really briefly? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, so one example is you can actually sync all of your settings to the cloud, right? So people take a long time getting Photoshop, for example, set up exactly the way they want to work. And now you can sync those settings to the cloud. And let's say you took the time to set it up on your, on your des- desktop machine, and then you switch over to your laptop. You just log in with your Adobe ID, and all of your settings are there for you. Uh, another one is uh, Sync Font. So this is a really big innovation that we announced last week. Um, So it uses the Typekit technology, which lets you use real fonts on your website, and now allows you to actually select and sync fonts to your desktop, meaning that it's not just for use on your website. You can actually um, choose from many, many new fonts. Actually, $25,000 worth is the is the value of the new fonts that we added to the library. And you can actually find a great font and then sync it to your desktop, and then it works in any of your desktop applications, whether that's Adobe uh, apps like Photoshop or Illustrator or even you know Microsoft Word apps, you know Microsoft Word or PowerPoint or whatever, uh, any of the Apple apps, anything with a, with a font menu. Um, also, we uh, have really advanced our uh, file syncing and storing capabilities. Uh, so in addition to being able to sync all of your work to the cloud so you can access it anywhere and you can share it with clients and colleagues, uh, we are also bringing in more collaboration capabilities there like folder sharing, which will be shipping next month, as well as file versioning. So actually, Creative Cloud keeps track of all the different versions of the files that you're collaborating with someone on. So if you ever want to go back and access an older version because you don't like maybe some changes that were made to the file, it's really easy to grab those. It doesn't overwrite your old versions. So that's just a handful of the new services that we introduced. 
So with the new Creative Cloud, do you have a different or more defined target audience than in the past? Um, our core audience for Creative Suite, the intention always was, and the core audience has been creative professionals. Um, people who you know use most of these tools or use some or all of these tools on a regular you know daily weekly basis um, I think what's different with creative cloud is because there isn't an upfront cost so if you buy one of our creative suites it can be up to you know over two thousand dollars as an upfront cost um, without that upfront cost and just having the monthly uh, the monthly membership instead uh, what creative cloud has actually done is it has brought in some a different type of customer than we were getting before in addition to creative pros we're getting um, lots of small and medium-sized businesses where you've got someone doing marketing at that small business who maybe you know the, the company couldn't afford uh, to put down Two or three thousand dollars upfront um, for someone who's um, doing marketing as part of their job, which includes maintaining the company website and doing flyers and email campaigns and things like that. Uh, but what we found is that with the no upfront cost and the convenient uh, low credit card uh, monthly payments, uh, we have found that that's bringing in a lot of those types of customers. And what is the cost? Uh, the cost for Creative Cloud membership, sort of the standard cost, is forty nine ninety nine a month. Um, so I'm just going to round. It's a little bit easier. It's basically $50 a month. Uh, and that gets everything that's in Creative Cloud. So all of the apps, all of the services, and then all new updates and upgrades as they come in the future. We do also offer a single app plan, which is if you only want Photoshop as an example, or you only want InDesign, but you also get access to a lot of the services that come along with it and upgrades and updates, uh, that's $19.99 a month or $20 a month. Right. And we also introduce some really great promotions pricing um, to help uh, people make this transition into Creative Cloud as well. And I guess I want to switch over to some of the more controversial issues now that we've got that groundwork laid down. Why did Adobe decide to eliminate perpetual licenses so soon? I think people were expecting this to happen, but they kind of weren't expecting it right now. Can you maybe delve into you know some of the reasoning that Adobe had to make this move today? Yeah, absolutely. That's a that's a very fair question. I want to just clarify one thing. Um, we are continuing to sell CS6, right? So we haven't actually eliminated our perpetual offering. You can buy Creative Suite 6 today, uh, and you will be able to buy it for the foreseeable future, the individual apps, or any of the suites. But what we did announce, to your point, is that we will not be investing any future new feature development and innovation in the Creative Suite product line. Uh, we'll continue to update them, you know, bug fixes, security patches. We'll make sure that it's compatible with the next major version of Mac OS, for example. Um, but what we won't do is put the new innovation and the new features into the Creative Suite line. But we'll continue to sell it for customers who simply aren't ready to move to the Creative Cloud model. Um, that being said, um, we do believe this is the best model moving forward. I, I understand that some people might have expected this, but do think that it came sooner than they expected. Uh, and there's a couple different reasons for that. Um, the reason we decided to uh, focus solely on Creative Cloud as the way that we're going to deliver new innovation moving forward is that there's a couple things. First of all, Creative Cloud has been really, really successful. It even more successful than we had even anticipated. Uh, in the first, you know, nine or ten months of having Creative Cloud available, over a half a million customers moved to it. These are customers who are paying that, you know, fifty dollars a month every month, and they made that switch to the cloud, which was a much faster transition of a for a larger percentage of our customer base than we had expected. So we really feel like Creative Cloud adoption has been very strong. Also, the customers who are choosing Creative Cloud are really, really loving it. They've been very vocal about how much they like Creative Cloud. Um, they, you know, all the time are giving feedback and social media, and you know, we have ratings and reviews on our own website, which is kind of like a Yelp review, right? People can go and they can review a product if if they have subscribed to it or own it, uh, and. The Creative Cloud uh, star rating is actually even higher than Photoshop, which is like unheard of for us to have a, to have a, a product that is uh, sort of more well-loved than Photoshop is. And so the, lots of customers moving to it. 
the customers who were moving were really loving it. And we decided that we wanted to, as a company, only have one focus moving forward, uh, having to maintain the perpetual offering and at the same time maintaining a second code base for the, for the subscription offering didn't make sense for us. It's a huge tax for us internally. And where we really want to focus a lot of the innovation moving forward is not just on the great features in the desktop tools, but on that services integration, uh, which without the cloud, you know, doesn't mean anything. And so given that that's uh, with us being able to focus, we can deliver more faster to customers by only having that one offering. And we can start delivering workflows through the cloud that are not even possible today. And so I think that combination of the success of the product, how much people are loving loving it, and what we believe we need to do to really focus on it and make it just a terrific offering moving forward and really differentiate the type of value that Adobe is offering to our customers. Okay. Um, I, I want to go to an adjunct to that question because there's another program called Lightroom, which yeah. is the photo, the photo management program um, that is within Creative Cloud, but it's also being offered in the old-fashioned perpetual license way. So I'm wondering if you can talk about why Adobe singled out Lightroom and if that has anything to do with the fact that the audiences are kind of becoming more differentiated. Um, yeah, so uh, we didn't just single out Lightroom because our um, our Elements products also continue to be available, Photoshop Elements and Premiere Elements. Um, also, other products from Adobe for, that creatives use, like Captivate, is still available. Also, obviously, Acrobat. Um, and so Adobe hasn't moved our whole business to this model. We really focused on the former Creative Suite products and the creative professional audience. Um, Lightroom's a little bit of a, um, a different case because Lightroom has a very, very broad audience. It is used by creative professionals, to your point. It is part of Creative Cloud, although it was never part of Creative Suite and still is not part of Creative Suite. It's also used by a very big consumer audience. Uh, Lightroom is just one of those products that has very, very broad appeal. And so uh, our the Creative Cloud offering is not the right offering for a consumer audience. It is definitely focused on creative professionals. And since Lightroom is available, is, is used by such a broad spectrum of customers, we didn't want to put it squarely in the Creative Pro camp and exclude it from also being available um, to uh, more casual hobbyist users uh, who, for whom we don't have you know, a Creative Cloud offering, really. And so that's why we continue to offer it as a perpetual product. And by perpetual, I just mean a you know, boxed uh, software. Right. Um, so how does Adobe plan to handle Camera Raw? So if you have Lightroom out there, which you know, has a Camera Raw component, and you have Photoshop, which also has a Camera Raw component, where where does that fit in? Because a lot of photographers out there, whether they're professional or advanced hobbyist enthusiast, are very concerned about the future of Camera Raw and their access to it. Uh, yeah, so obviously uh, with a Creative Cloud membership, uh, they get ongoing access to new features and, and uh, updates as they're available. But we have also stated that we will also continue to support Camera Raw for the existing perpetual products, so for CS6. Uh, there's a time frame, I believe, that we've put around it, and I don't have the exact uh, time. I'm, I'm sorry, I, I don't have that off the top of my head, but we will be continuing to provide updates. Okay, so there is a cutoff date. Is there maybe a version date as well? Uh, yeah, uh, you know, to be really honest, I'm, I'm sorry that I don't have that information off the top of my head, uh, but I know that we are committing to update Camera Raw for the CS6 customers uh, for at least a period of time, and I don't, I don't know what that period of time is. Okay. So now I want to move into the more controversial areas about the release of Creative Cloud and sure. the introduction of this, you know, quick new thing that Adobe had put in front of everybody just last year. Um, here are some of the major things that we've heard, and maybe Adobe can have a chance to, to answer them in their own words. One thing that people were very concerned about was that it, it makes it seem as if the switch denies people the choice of buying software in the way that they want to or in the way that they're used to. And if I wonder if, first of all, can Adobe comment on mm -hmm. that? 
Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, I certainly understand that this was a really big change, and for some customers, it came fairly sudden. Um, they didn't expect us to to make this change so as quickly as we did, and that's fair. Uh, and also, everyone uh, sort of decide has to decide what's right for them, including if Creative Cloud is right and when they might be ready to move to the Creative Cloud offering. Um, we are continuing to offer CS6, so we didn't remove the choice that people have. Uh, we just said that moving forward, we're going to shift all of our focus for new feature development to be on Creative Cloud. Um, I think that, um, uh, you know, again, for us, um, the we want to offer customers the choice. They can buy CS6, but we really believe that moving to the cloud is a better way for us to deliver innovation faster. And to be frank, you know, I know people have bought the software from us in that way for years, but um, in a way that's kind of, that speaks to why we made this change, right? For like 20 years plus, maybe 30 years, we've been delivering shrink wrap desktop software, and we as a company needed to evolve our offering. And Creative Cloud is the way that we are choosing to do that. So while it might be a little bit sudden for some people, um, you know, on the other hand, it's, you know, this is, uh, you know, Adobe's been delivering software in the same way for many, many years, and it was definitely time for a change. And Creative Cloud is a model that allows us to basically have a platform for innovation to deliver new services, new workflows that we have never offered to our customers before. So we had to make a choice. It's a big uh, moment in our company's evolution, and we think that we have a lot to offer to Creative Pros uh, with the new offering as well. People are afraid that if they unsubscribe for any reason, if they lose business or the economy sinks, which has been known to happen, that if they end their subscription at some point, that they are going to lose access to their own creative files. They won't be able to access them without a fee. They won't be able to open up um, their own work. They, you know, There's proprietary file formats that other... Uh, translating programs don't have access to. And and so I wonder if Adobe, if you, can um, explain how that continuum will go. Yeah, that's a great question. And we've definitely seen that concern from people uh, exactly as you stated it. Um, and I, what I can tell you is that um, we are very actively engaging with our community to understand some of the things about the Creative Cloud offering that are making them a little bit nervous and that might be inhibiting their move to Creative Cloud. And then we are committed to addressing as many of those things as we can, either through new policies that we can implement uh, that solve some of these problems or even changes to the product in terms of what we're offering. So, you know, examples are that we heard a lot of feedback that um, because it is a monthly membership, um, you know, while the software runs on your desktop, it's not running in the cloud, uh, it does have to ping our servers once a month just to make sure your membership is still active. There was some concern about people wanting to be offline for a longer period of time. We already extended then that grace period from 30 days to 90 days in terms of, you know, the software's not going to stop working. Even if something happens and your payments aren't coming through, we're going to give you 90 days and we're actually going to be extending that even longer in the near future as a way to address some of those concerns people are having. The specific, So we will continue to do that. And around this issue, we have definitely heard that customers are concerned uh, about not having access to their files. They would still, of course, have their files, but if you can't really open them or do anything with them, it's understandable that that would be concerning to people. We are evaluating a couple different things that we could do there. Uh, we could potentially let you have ongoing access to the software after you end your membership, but all the software can do is open and save as or export to a different format maybe. You wouldn't have access to all the other creative features in the in the software. We could create a service that allows you to, you know, transcode your files and we'll export them to, you know, a different, a different format. I mean, there's many different things that we could do. Uh, so I'm not announcing specific plans, but I'm definitely saying that we are listening and we would actually like the community's help in addressing the different areas where they have some concerns and contributing to what a solution might look like so that we can actually build something that makes sense for our customers. 
That that would be great. So are you planning some kind of announcement when you get that figured out? Yeah, I think, um, you know, uh, we, 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 we already are sort of actively out there in the different forums and online sites telling, you know, soliciting comments from people and encouraging them to give us their ideas. Uh, and soon, you know, we'll, we'll probably make a bigger public announcement around our intentions. But before we actually have the solution in place, we don't want to, you know, rush to, um, to implement something. We want to take the time to get feedback from the community so that we can come up with a policy or a product or a service uh, that we think works. So what you're saying is that the Creative Cloud has been announced and you have a basic plan to implement it, but that it is going to be evolving over time based on community reaction. That's absolutely right. I mean, that's another thing that another reason why we love this model of delivering software and services is because unlike Creative Suite, where we are locked to a moment in time, an example is, you know, our Photoshop engineers build 10 great new features in Photoshop, but if we had just shipped Photoshop and the next version wasn't coming for 18 or 24 months later, we would just sit on those features and not make them available to customers. And now that changes. We can make those available the moment they're ready. In the same way, we will prob- we will definitely introduce more services uh, as part of Creative Cloud. We're always evaluating the different policies around how you buy it, around how it works. Um, and that's something that is constantly evolving. Uh, we're still fairly early in the evolution of this offering. Some folks have opined that Adobe with Creative Cloud has kind of shifted its concern from small shops to larger corporations and larger entities. And I wonder if that's true from your point of view. Uh, no, it's not, because in fact, most of the Creative Cloud adoption uh, has actually been to date with freelancers and with individuals. Uh, we didn't even have an offering for small and medium-sized businesses or uh, or let alone large enterprises or organizations until fairly recently. Um, pretty much the first year of Creative Cloud being available, it was pretty much the individual offering designed for freelancers that was out there, and we saw tremendous adoption with that. Uh, so it's definitely not a focus on, on large companies. Um, we continue to, uh, we want to continue to serve the full breadth of our customers, for sure. And, and what about the educational markets and some of the government markets that, you know, typically like to order large seats, large seat bases of, of these of these programs? Yeah, so that those are great examples. Uh, those are great examples of customers who were not able to move to Creative Cloud in our first year because we did not have the right offering for them. Uh, sort of the off-the-shelf Creative Cloud offering doesn't work for those audiences for a couple reasons. Um, if it's a K-12 school, you've got children under a certain age uh, and you're not uh, permitted to give them any access to user-generated content. And one of the features of our, the new tools is direct integration with Behance, which is this thriving online community, but it is user-generated content. Uh, and for government agencies, there are definitely a bunch of government customers who can't use the public cloud. They're simply forbidden from doing that. So what we've done in the spirit of listening to our customers and developing something custom for a customer to make this work for them, uh, we have all these new tools that we just uh, announced and we're going to be bundling them up and offering them to government customers, to education customers, and to enterprise customers via a different mechanism, one that allows them to use the desktop tools and, for example, download and install the software not off Adobe Cloud but through a different mechanism for government customers or turning off the services for government customers, um, blocking user-generated content for K-12 customers. So we've thought through all of those and we've come up with buying programs that will put the technology in the hands of those customers uh, getting around um, the different uh, barriers to adoption that they had. A lot of people who are interested in Creative Cloud are a little bit reluctant to subscribe to it right now because they are afraid that after all of the premium prices and all of the special offerings that Adobe is putting out there to attract people to the service, that once that's all over, the price is going to start going up. What do you say to that? I think that's very fair. Um, I I totally understand that concern. Um, We don't have anything like a policy statement that guarantees that prices won't go up ever (laughs) because as a company, we can't do that. But I can tell you that it is absolutely not our intent to be raising these prices. Um, We believe that, you know, $49.99 $49.99 a month, 50 bucks a month for the full Creative Cloud offering is a great price. 
uh, and we think it's the appropriate price for everything that we're giving. Um, we don't have an intent to raise those prices as soon as people get in. Um, we are offering really great discounted pricing for a limited time to help ease the transition for people. So it's 30 bucks a month, for example, or even 20 bucks a month if you're a CS6 customer. After the year, your price will go up to the standard price. We're being very upfront about that. We're not trying to bait and switch. We're saying you get in for your first year for 20 bucks, but then moving forward, the standard list retail price for this will be $50 a month. And we feel that that's very fair, and we don't have any intention of making any big changes in our pricing. Users have taken it upon themselves to post a petition online asking Adobe to reconsider their position on Creative Cloud to offer that choice again that they did last year. Um, how do you respond to that? That seems unprecedented. And I believe the last figure I read this morning was that it had 9,000 signatures. What does Adobe <laughs> think about that? Yeah, so, um, so I actually think it's fine. Uh, you know, Adobe is not planning on on changing the offering like that or changing the policy. But I think that it's great to have spirited public debate about this because the customers who don't like what we're doing and are being the most vocal also are are giving us a lot of ideas about ways that maybe the offering isn't perfect and things that we can change and things that we can add that will make it better. Um, and there was quite a bit of an uproar when we introduced the whole idea of Creative Suites 10 years ago, where we had a lot of customers who were very upset. Uh, we didn't have sort of online social media like we have today, so we didn't have the online petitions back then. But um, we had a lot of upset customers who didn't understand why we were introducing a big change. And over time, as we proved the value in delivering that model by buying all the software bundled, you actually got a better price than if you bought it individually. We put integration between the tools in ways that we had never offered before. And it started really making sense to customers and come to today where the majority of customers are on Creative Suite. So this is just another transition like that. Um, for some customers, they're simply not ready at this point in time, and that's perfectly okay. We hope that we will prove to them that we're really delivering something different here. And that over time, they're going to see the amazing things we're putting into Creative Cloud, not only from a desktop tool perspective, but online services that open up brand new workflows that were never possible before. And, you know, we have to prove to them that we can deliver a really fantastic product that's going to make them want uh, to come along. And if that time is not now, that's perfectly fine. So what do you see overall as the future of Creative Cloud? What do you envision? Um, so what I envision is that more and more community will be a really big part of Creative Cloud. Um, you know, that was the driving force behind our acquisition of Behance last year. And then we introduced with this uh, release um, integration between Behance and the desktop tools themselves. Talk about Behance a little bit. Sure. So Behance is a thriving online community of creative professionals, not just those using our tools, but using lots of different tools to create beautiful work. Um, there's about 1.4 million members, and what they do is they publish their portfolios and their works in progress on Behance, which is in a great way to get feedback from the community on the work that you have, as well as a way to discover great new work, to get inspiration from what others are doing, and even to be discovered yourself because you get such broad exposure through Behance with, uh, I don't know the number, but as I know it's millions and millions of portfolio views every month. And so um, we introduced with the, um, with the updates last week that we announced, actually integrating community directly into the creative process where you're right within Photoshop and without even leaving Photoshop, you can publish the work that you're working on to your works in progress in Behance. And then the feedback that you're getting from that work once it hits the Behance site streams directly to you through notifications on your desktop with the new little desktop app we have. So I think that's what you can look to see in the future from Creative Cloud. We will certainly continue to provide major feature updates in the desktop tools themselves, but we're really going to focus on how the creative services, whether it's community, whether it's the file sharing and the collaboration capabilities, publishing services, how all those things tie together and actually get integrated deeply within the creative tools themselves. So I think the workflows will look very different a couple years from now than they have looked in the past, for sure. And I, I want to follow up on that for a sec. Um, 
What does Adobe have any suggestions for workflow for people who either are going to decide to stay with CS6 or are going to move to Creative Cloud? Are is there any kind of established uh, workflow assistance that Adobe has in mind? Um, we don't really have workflow assistance. What we do have for our Creative Cloud members is we do actually have a very robust set of online videos and tutorials that help walk them through how to use the tools and the services in Creative Cloud. It's embedded directly into the Creative Cloud experience. It's all free for members, uh, and it um, and it's. Uh, partly uh, content created by Adobe, but also by industry partners like Kelby Media, Scott Kelby's company, as an example, uh, that's that's integrated into it to really help them get up and running and be successful with Creative Cloud. If people aren't on Creative Cloud and they're using CS6, we also have a lot of great tools and resources available in a similar manner through Adobe TV, uh, which is where we publish a lot of our own tutorials and, and resources, and, and there's a lot of content there for CS6 customers as well. So, Scott, did you have any final thoughts that you wanted to share with the, the audience? Um, well, I really appreciate you uh, having me come and spend some time with you here. I think that um, what I would say is that uh, for customers who uh, don't feel that they're ready for Creative Cloud, there's a couple things I think you can do. Um, actually take a little bit of time to learn a little bit more about the offering. I think sometimes when we see uh, resistance to the whole cloud model, a lot of it is based on information that is not actually correct, like people thinking that Photoshop is running in a browser and people thinking you have to always be, uh, you know, always be connected to the internet. What happens if I want to fly in a plane and work on my Photoshop files? None of that is a problem. That's not the way Creative Cloud works. So I would say just take a little time to educate yourself on the offering. Um, decide what's right for you. It might be that Creative Cloud is not right for you, or it might be that it is. Um, if you think that it might be, we have lots of great uh, promotional off promotional pricing to, to at least let you start trying it. I mean, if you're a CS6 customer, 20 bucks a month to use everything Adobe has for the first year is a pretty good deal. Um, and you can try all the apps for free as well through a free membership. And I would just say people should take a little bit of time to actually understand the offering and then decide what's right for them. Okay. Well, Thanks very much, Scott Morris, Senior Marketing Director of Adobe, for coming on the broadcast. Great. Thank you very much. And for more information on Creative Cloud, have a look at Macworld's website at www.macworld.com and Adobe's website at adobe.com. And now a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it easy to create your own website. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com macworld and use the offer code macworld5. Squarespace is constantly updating their platform with new features, new designs, and more support. They have beautiful designs for you to start with and tons of style options for you to adjust. So you really can create your own online space. Squarespace takes care of hosting, SEO, and even makes sure your website automatically looks great on any device. It's incredibly easy to use, but if you want some help, Squarespace has an amazing support team that works 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. It starts at just $8 a month and includes a domain name if you sign up for a year. You can try Squarespace for free, no credit card required. Make sure to get 10% off and support the show by using the offer code MACWORLD5. That's Macworld and the number five. Squarespace, everything you need to create an exceptional website. And now Jeff Carlson and I talk iPhoto. I'm joined by frequent contributor Jeff Carlson, who's additionally known for his work at Tidbits and for more Peach Pit press titles than I can count. Welcome, Jeff. Hello. So you recently wrote about things Apple might do to improve iPhoto. So when was the last time Apple touched iPhoto in a significant way? Um, I think in a significant way, uh, well, for, for a full version, I think it was 2010. And I think for a, a like major update uh, was, I want to say, June of last year. And that's when they, they worked in, uh, they, they changed the, database format of the library so that it could be shared with Aperture. Okay. And then was that the same time they introduced PhotoStream? 
No, I think PhotoStream came the year before. So in the space of nearly three years, there seems there might be room for improvement. So um, given that that is the subject of your article, let's march down the list. So what was your first suggestion? Uh, my first suggestion was uh, not, not to get rid of a feature, but to let me turn off the faces feature. And what that does for people who aren't familiar with it, uh, briefly, uh, iPhoto will scan your library and look for something that vaguely looks like it could be a face, skin tone, eyes, nose, mouth, and then let you specify who that is. So I could say, this is Chris. And then it will go through the rest of your library, and when it finds people that look like Chris, it will then ask, says, is this Chris? And you can say yes. And the more that you, the more um, positive results you throw at it, the better the recognition gets. So you can have a nice uh, uh, database of all the people in your photos that you can then go back and say, just show me all the pictures that Chris is in. Sounds great. It does sound great. And, uh, and why would you want to turn that off? Well, because it takes up a lot of processing power. And it seems, um, not just on my machine, I've heard this from other people too, that there's no control over it. So you launch iPhoto and it starts looking and starts updating. And it's just very processor intensive. And so launching iPhoto basically makes my machine start to heat up, the processors go crazy, the fans turn on. And from my perspective, it's not doing anything. It's it's searching in the background, and you can see the little um, uh, activity indicator next to the uh, faces item in the sidebar spin up occasionally. And then it just it, it just kind of sits there and, and chews. And, you know, especially if you don't have like a super modern fast machine that came out in the last six months or so uh that can just start to wear on well wear on your patience and um just slow things down in general scrolling through through your photos gets a little bit slower and uh it's just annoying and it's not like it's an essential feature so it, it's it's definitely something that i would want to maybe you know uh, jump into occasionally, but I don't have that option. Like, like the feature is, is just on. Mm-hmm. And in Aperture, um, Apple's pro-level photo app, uh, they introduced that feature too. And uh, pro photographers basically cried foul immediately because uh, it, was, it was using up so much of the processing power. And so I think in, in a very early revision of Aperture, they uh, after they introduced faces, they added an option in the preferences to just turn the feature off so that it wouldn't be, you know, occupying that much of, of, of the machine's resources. Right. So you're simply asking for them to offer you the same option in iPhoto. Yeah, exactly. So I think part of my my focus with the article was not how can iPhoto be dramatically improved, because I'm sure we can think of all sorts of other reasons. And... um not reasons, I'm sorry, but uh, we can think of all sorts of other ways and features that could be added or removed. But since we're waiting for whatever the next big revision will be, in the meantime, little things that, granted, I'm not a programmer, so I say, oh, all I have to do is just add a checkbox to turn this off. And I'm sure developers probably just broke out in a cold sweat. But, (laughs) um, you know, like things that seem reasonable to make iPhoto more usable as it is until whenever a new version comes out. So is Faces something, a feature that you actually use? I don't. I, no, I'll, I'll take that back. I have used it on occasion. So for example, um, when my father-in-law passed away, we wanted to have like a, a, a photo memorial at the memorial service. And Faces was great for that because I could say, you know, show me all pictures of Bob in my library. And um, I think at the time, like it hadn't done everything or I hadn't launched iPhoto in a while. And so I, I had to do a little bit of manual um, going through the faces feature and, and, you know, saying, yes, this is Bob. No, that's not Bob. But basically doing that, it probably took me maybe 
half an hour to find a bunch of good photos. Whereas if I just had to randomly scroll through or try to remember, okay, when was the last time he came up to visit? Maybe I have some photos from there. You know, that would have taken a lot longer Mm -hmm. uh, chunks of time. But, um, you know, besides that, it's not really been a compelling feature for me. And I use it kind of the same way. I hardly ever touch the thing because particularly if you're importing a bunch of images that you've had for the last 10 years and bringing, it just seems like a Herculean task to go through 15,000 or 20,000 images tagging everybody's face in the thing. So I just avoid it as much as possible. Definitely. You know, I can, I think you could probably make an argument for, you know, maybe using it to, to tag like maybe, you know, three or four important people in your life, your, your, your immediate family or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know, even then, like, I like the idea of the technology and I don't find myself using it. So, mm-hmm. you know, unless you're, you're a real completist and want to make sure that every single person is identified and all of that, um, it's, it seems like it's something that, that could easily be turned off or paused or something. Right. Yeah, the problem that I, I have is that uh, my mother's face routinely shows up in pictures of tortillas, and I'm not <laughs> sure why that is. I've talked to her about it. Um, she she emits sort of an unearthly glow. That may have something to do with it. But um, Okay, yeah. I see. I, see. I was going to say, are you sure it's your mother and not <laughs> well, other people? Or? <laughs> I've just, <laughs> I'm checking back on that. I'll, I'll let you name, know. Is her name Mary, by chance? <laughs> no. Huh, it's strange huh. you should say that. What an amazing coincidence. Hmm. Um, okay, so from tortillas, let's talk about uh, <laughs> offline images, which is a terrible segue. Um, Wonderful segue. Yes. Now, isn't it possible to create multiple libraries of images and manage your photos that way instead of having everything in just one library? Yes. Yes, of course that's possible. How do you want to uh, scramble your brain? Mm. Um, <laughs> so... So the problem is iPhoto stores everything in one large library, which happens to actually be a package that um, holds a lot of smaller files. But for practical purposes, it, it, it's all in one big glob. Um, glob is a technical term, of course. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so we have a finite amount of space, especially if you have um, an SSD um, solid state drive, um, you know, like, like maybe you just bought a MacBook Air that has less capacity than your iMac. Um, and so all that space has to go somewhere. Um, most programs, um, like let's say, you know, Lightroom, even Aperture, let you store the actual photo files elsewhere, like on an external drive, and just links. Uh, the, and, and the app, the application links to that file. So even if you're not connected, if that drive is at home and you're out traveling, you can still see your whole library. You just may not be able to, you know, do any detailed edits on those on those files. iPhoto uh, just really wants to hold on to that that everything is stored in one place model. Um, there's an option to copy items to the iPhoto library when you're importing them, which is sort of like having this this idea of, of a referenced file. The problem is that only applies to things that you're importing from your hard drive or from an external hard drive. Um, if you're importing photos from directly from the camera, they all just get, get pushed into your, your big glob. Um, and so that's kind of... A, that's almost a good workaround mm-hmm. by 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 not copying things into the library. The problem is uh, when you do disconnect that drive, um, iPhoto doesn't know what to do with it. So let's say I've I want to review some of these photos that that's not that are not on my local drive. If I double click one to view it larger, more than just the little uh, thumbnail icon, iPhoto says, "Oh, I can't find that photo. Do you want me to search for it?" And you say cancel because you know that it's somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And instead of even getting like a larger version of the thumbnail, you just get a black screen with a little warning uh, uh, symbol that says that it can't find the the file. So that's what happens. And the the problem with that is 
our our libraries are getting larger, and it makes sense to have things on external drives in that way. So going back to your to your original question, which is why not just have multiple libraries? What's nice about something like iPhoto is you can see everything there. So you don't have to have like this sort of invisible mental model of, all right, uh, my vacation photos are in this external iPhoto library on this drive, or maybe everything between you know, 2008 and 2012 I have in a library over on this drive. And so even then you can't access it if you're not connected to it. Mm-hmm. Being able to just say, these are all my photos and here they are and I can scroll through them is a great advantage because because it's it's your library. It's it's not like I suppose it'd be in you know, the old days thinking, okay, if I want the photos of the um my cousins, they're in the cabinet in the bedroom versus the photos of my grandparents, which is in the drawer on the left hand side of the dining room. That kind of thing. Right, right. In my so case though, it's it's my grandparents are three quarters of the way down this pile inside this brown <laughs> box. And I think my aunt and uncle are shoved off to the north side of the box. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which is really helpful when somebody else needs to go find that for you. Um, and so, it's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, Oh, you know, it's, it's over there in the thing, but next to the other thing, not the one that with the colors on it. Right, and so I, so kind of maybe maybe that uh, iPhoto is a perfect analog for the way we normally store our photos, which is not That's well. True. <laughs> I mean, I think they have this idealized view that we all keep photo albums, you know, and we in the old days we'd pull out the book and we carefully put them in there and the little uh, hooks and things to to keep them in place. But nobody does; they just shove them into a drawer or a box. Yeah, exactly, and so. Um, you know, and being able to, to see it all there. And I, I don't know, I guess what, what sort of is crazy about this is that it's not like this is um, an intractable problem. It's not like, like, oh, well, no one's figured this out yet. Like, everybody's figured it out. Mm-hmm. Apple figured it out. They implemented it in, in Aperture. So, you know, perhaps they can, they can bring that over. Um, you know, I, I can appreciate the philosophy of it. And I think it, it's, it's the philosophy of iPhoto that that's driving stuff like this, which is, you know, if you are, are putting your photos on an external drive that kind of pushes you out of the sort of average, uh, you know, consumer who just wants to look at their photos and store their photos. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think maybe that was true at one point, but you know, now you don't have to be a professional to create, you know, 10,000 photos because you've got your iPhone, you've got, you know, point and shoots and, and all sorts of things like that. And having your photos stored on a different drive, it's not that much of a conceptual jump, especially because the problem is I have run out of space. Now what do I do? And so... Apple's not really responding to the real world uh, uh, situation, or maybe they have. They just it's it's in the mythical next big version of iPhoto. Mm-hmm. Well, then I have to wonder if maybe Apple's solution is your next point, which is PhotoStream, that you don't have to worry about external drives because it's all in the cloud. I that that's very likely. Yeah, yeah, um, and yeah, that's. A neat idea. The um, part of the thing that that prompted this this article I wrote um, was a, an opinion piece by um, I want to say his name is Peter Nixie. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Um, and and he, his argument was um, yes, iPhoto and and sort of photo management in general, um, or, or Apple's way of managing photos is is needlessly complicated and and, and broken. And he suggests that there should just be like one big photo cloud, and that's the master, and I can access it from whatever device I have. And I think that that's there's a lot of of, of there's a lot of good ideas there, mm-hmm. but I personally don't think like a master cloud is the answer because you have to deal with um, a 
lot of storage, and more importantly, a lot of um, transfer. Um, and, you know, I have a, a decent internet connection, and it still would take a very long time to upload, you know, 32 gigs of photos. Let's say I, I go away for a weekend and I, you know, do a whole lot of, of, of shooting. Um, you know, if I have 16 gigs, uh, you know, 32 gigs, even 8 gigs, like that's going to take a significant amount of time to upload even on my fairly fast cable internet connection. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and like not everybody has that. My my mom is on a, a satellite internet connection, which, as you know, is not speedy in the remotest sense of the word. No, and plus they cap it every time <laughs> yeah. they can. So, no, that's a horrible way to deal with anything. Yeah. I think that, that, that there will come a point when, when, you know, we can upload things faster and maybe we all have fiber or, you know, whatever the super fast speed is by then. Um, but for right now... It's just another possibility, but it's not like the answer. So, what would you like to see from PhotoStream? Um, I don't know. I I actually don't mind PhotoStream as it is. I just don't think that it's it's the it's the big the big end all. Um, what my my suggestion in the article is uh, the ability to to uh, copy PhotoStream images to the Finder. Um, right now, you can only use iPhoto or Aperture on the Mac to get your photo stream images. So all the shots that you're taking with your, your iPhone or your iPad, um, that all gets gets added to your photo stream and sent up to the cloud. And it's, it's a very mobile-centered idea, which is cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you want to put those on your computer because... Um, you want to be able to view your photos there, but you have to choose between iPhoto or Aperture if you happen to have both. Um, you can't do them at the same time. Like, like it's either iPhoto or you're getting them via Aperture. My idea with PhotoStream is to be able to um, have my my photos appear wherever I want them to. And, for example, that could be just a, a, a folder on my hard drive. So it would be very Dropbox-like, where if I go and I'm snapping some photos with my iPhone, they get uploaded to um, PhotoStream when I'm at a Wi-Fi hotspot. And then those photos then come back down onto my uh, Mac and just show up in a folder where I can do other things with them. So perhaps I don't use iPhoto as my as my main uh, photo organizing app, but I can specify that, say, Lightroom will import, you know, things from that folder, or I can I- import it later, or you know, Photoshop Elements or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so um, that that gives me more control over over where they end up, and also helps me keep track of of, of those photos that are in my photo stream without then, you know, um, if I connect my iPhone and want to uh, import things, do I need to re-import them from my, do I need to re-import them from my iPhone or are they already there? Like there's just that, that sort of having your images be required to, to go to the photo, go to photo stream and then be, uh, shuttled into either iPhoto or Aperture kind of puts them in a little box. Mm-hmm. And if you're not using iPhoto as your main uh, photo manager, you can forget where they are. Right. Well, of course, you could go to iCloud and look at your photo stream there with your browser, which is, I think, everybody's ideal of uh, of a way to view images is to use a web browser for everything. Yeah, Definitely. I can't believe I, I even wrote the article after that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I do. I think this is sort of a fallback in some ways for Apple when they say, when people have these sort of complaints, they say, well, you know, you're restricting me here and you're restricting me. It's like, no, no, no. You could just go up to iCloud.com and look at it all in a browser. You know what? Mm. Be, I have an even better idea. Mm. We could just do everything on the iPhone via a browser. No apps or any. Oh, I'm sorry. That's how it started. <laughs> oh yeah. Hmm. <laughs> I 
they seem to have walked back from that one somehow. Yeah, just a bit. I'm, you know, it's having everything accessible via browser is good as a fallback, but that only takes into account that you might be sitting somewhere and you want to show someone a photo and not do any of the, you know, hundred other things you would want to do to a photo, like, you know, edit it or add keywords or, mm-hmm. you know, share it to different services and all of that. Well, yeah, it does seem to be based on sort of an old model that, and I think this is what we would say years ago, say, well, you know, imagine you're in a hotel at the hotel's computer. Because you don't, yes. obviously, you don't have a device of your own. You don't have a laptop. You're just going to this innocuous, <laughs> only one Windows machine somewhere, like you're going to yep. have your friends with you, you know, and pull up your webpage and say, look, here's a picture of my dog. And like, uh, does yeah. anybody do that anymore? Someone must, because you, you still see like like the one or two lonely Windows 95 machines on the rickety table off yeah. to the side with the little sign that says, you know, internet station or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Internet, it's located right here. Yeah, it's all, it's all here with an intercap N, just to show you how, <laughs> how techy that really is. Um, and finally, you closed out by talking about metadata. So first, what's your complaint about it? And next, how big a concern is metadata for your average iPhoto user? That's a good question. Um, so metadata is is all the stuff that you that you add to your photo, such as um, if you want to do uh, titles, keywords, um, uh, ratings, ratings especially. Um, so once you have your photos and you bring them into photo uh, um, iPhoto, and you do stuff with it because you want to say which ones are good, which ones are bad, and maybe you do a little bit of you know that sort of. Uh, uh, Editing of the information about the photo. The that's that's great. The problem with with iPhoto's implementation of, of metadata is that um, you're 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 back to the closed box, mm-hmm. which is you can you can do all this stuff. You can add ratings. You can you know um, apply keywords, but you can't do anything with them. Afterwards, so let's say hypothetically you decide that iPhoto um, no longer meets your needs. You've you've decided that you're you're more of a of a you know um, almost professional or enthusiast photographer, and you want to move to to Lightroom or something like that. Um, there's no way to get your photos out of iPhoto easily and have all that metadata atta- attached. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. So, for example. Let's say you know you have uh, a thousand photos in your library. It's small, but it's a nice round number. Um, if you wanted to to uh, export those with their titles, if you change the titles other than just the, the file names, and if you added it in keywords, you can do that if you convert everything to a JPEG. And, and export them that way because um, titles and keywords can just be written directly into the, the the photo file. Okay, so raw files are out. Raw files are out. Ooh. Raw files. Um, what you can do is you can export uh, the original version of your photos, but those remain untouched, and you can't do titles and keywords at all. Um, and so, yeah, that that doesn't include raw files. That kind of violates the, the whole idea of these are my photos. I don't want you to be messing with them, mm-hmm. especially if I'm going to bring them I- into something else. And, and even more so, especially if I have raw files and I want to keep my metadata with them, um, I would have to export JPEG versions of those. And then you're dealing with, you know, mismatched pairs of, well, here's the raw file and here's the JPEG. And, you know, can they get put back together correctly, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and even worse, uh, ratings are just tossed out the window. So, you know, I can understand people who, who don't take the time to do keywords because that, that's kind of like, like another level of organization, but I think everybody probably does at least some, uh, amount of, of rating to just say, you know, Hey, you know, these are my three star photos or my four star photos. 
these are the ones that I really like, and this one I don't really, you know, is is okay. Um, because you want to be able to, you know, go and find the good pictures. Mm-hmm. No matter how you export it, you can't get ratings out. Um, and uh, the, there were some utilities that would that would basically like like reach into iPhoto's library and pull that information out. But um, from what I understand, when Apple made the change to the database structure that could be shared between iPhoto and Aperture, um, like that door got closed off. And so like you can't even, you know, sort of go in through the guts to pull that information out. Hmm. And, you know, I know that, that you know, earlier I was saying that, um, you know, what I'm asking is not really a pro feature. And this is kind of this border it kind of moves in the direction of pro because, you know, maybe people don't need a lot of excessive metadata. But, you know, ratings, I think, are something that, that any casual user will use and will want it to keep hold of. Um, I mentioned that to my wife um, because part of this, too, was, was the uh, part of the inspiration for this argument was that, um, you know, my wife has an old MacBook Pro um, and I want to put a, a solid state drive in it to speed it up. But of course, the SSD is smaller than the, the hard drive that she has. And so I was like, oh, well, I'll just export your photos and we'll put them on an external drive and, and all of that. And run into the, the fact that, that none of that is possible. And I said, well, I can export everything, but your ratings won't come along. Mm-hmm. And she looked at me like, like I was, you know, thre- threatening her bodily harm. She's like, you will not undo the hours that I put into <laughs> rating my photos, <laughs> you know, and it's good. good so even moment. if aperture takes these things, it, it won't take the ratings with it. Um, no, actually I, I think if, if aperture does, um, aperture can, um, can pull ratings and things like that. The issue that I'm bringing up with here is that um, to do that, you basically need to buy Aperture. Right. And, you know, I, I think for, for some people, spending the money to buy Aperture just to use that as like a, a converter, say, if you wanted to, to switch to Lightroom or something else, um, you know, it, it might be worth it, but it's kind of borderline. I mean, right. can't really ask somebody to buy Aperture as a full thing just to pull your ratings out. It just seems like kind of a cheat. Yeah. Well, um, in terms of those apps, do Lightroom and Aperture allow you to export metadata? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, um, that was part of, part of my my um, uh, sort of amazement about this aspect of it is that it's not like it's a it's a problem that hasn't been solved. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a there's a file format called XML, which is um, uh, extensible metadata. Uh, I'm sorry, XMP, um, Extensible Metadata Platform. Um, and what that does is it creates a little sidecar file that goes along with with your image. So if you're exporting a raw file and you've applied uh, keywords and ratings and, and all of that, um, the raw file, when you export it, that remains unchanged. And you have this basically tiny little text file that has shares the same file name and that holds all your metadata so that when you then go import those pairs into, say, Lightroom, then those are um, read together and mm. properly fused fused together back right. in. Right. Okay, well, this goes a little bit beyond the bounds of the article, but um, I just wanted to get your overall impressions of iPhoto. So is the implementation as we see now just ripe for tweaking or do you think Apple should really rethink this given the number of images we now have and the more things we want to do with it? I think the, I think the bones of iPhoto are, are still good. Um, I find myself sort of frustrated because, uh, and I've actually kind of felt this way for a long time with iPhoto. Like, I, I don't think they engineered it for large libraries. I think mm-hmm. that, you know, it, it was engineered for 
you know, making it work with, with small libraries. And then as libraries have gotten bigger, they've, they've you know, uh, reworked it to keep up. Um, I mean, I, I think if I'm remembering correctly, um, when they introduced events in iPhoto 2 or 3, um, part of the idea behind that was, yes, we know you have thousands of photos and this will be one way of sort of grouping them into um, little event containers so that um, you can find things better. But I think part of it too was um, if we can show you a screen of, you know, 40 events, that's going to improve the performance of the app rather than trying to scroll through, you know, 6,000 photos. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I mean, my thought about, about iPhoto changing um, really goes to iPhoto for iOS since, since that's um, quite different from, from iPhoto on the desktop. I mean, it, it, you know, it has a, a different look and feel, but it also has features that you can't find in the desktop version, mm-hmm. like, 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 you know, spot editing of, of, of specific areas and things like that. Um, and it just, it, it seems as if, well, I would be very surprised if the next major version of iPhoto did not look like iPhoto for iOS, or at least you know was was significantly more in that uh, in that direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it certainly seems that's the way Apple's going with a lot of the um, the media apps that they put out. That they do incorporate elements of there, but you're sort of waiting for that next big change. And considering that the last time we saw a new iLife suite was what. Five years ago, um, iPhoto eleven. So, yeah, but I think that was a year three. before. So maybe three years ago. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it does seem like it's ripe for more than just tweaks this time. That uh, we used to get these updated every year, and now it's been at least three years. Yeah, yeah. I think it's sort of funny that 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 they they've they still refer to it as iPhoto eleven. And I wonder if if companies will finally learn, like stop stop naming things with years. <laughs> um, you know, perhaps somebody uh, at Apple is using a spreadsheet from using numbers 09 to calculate the effects of naming uh, iLife 11. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I know we'll call it we'll call it iLife 13 and a half, <laughs> right? Or just iLife. As they did with the iPhone and some other things where they just stopped giving them numbers because after a while it gets silly. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, so for more details on Jeff's four things Apple could do to improve iPhoto, we have it on Mackerel.com. Please check it out and check out Jeff's other work on Tidbits, uh, his many books on Peach Pit Press. What, what else are you doing? Um, that's keeping me pretty busy. Yeah, I would think so. <laughs> Oh, and where can we find you on Twitter? Uh, Twitter, at Jeff Carlson, J-E-F-F-C-A-R-L-S-O-N. Also the same for um, app.net. Excellent. Thank you very much, Jeff. Thank you. And that wraps up this episode of the Macworld Podcast, sponsored by Squarespace. I'd like to thank Jackie Dove, Adobe Scott Morris, Jeff Carlson, and, of course, you for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to drop us a line at podcast at macworld.com, or you can leave us a voicemail at 415-967-3622. This is Chris Breen reminding you that you can find more Apple, macOS, iOS, and technology news, views, and information at macworld.com. See you around.